Well, we're starting a new series on Paul's uh, first letter to Timothy, and uh, the title is Entrusted. And it comes from Paul's own words from chapter one, where he tells us that, that he, Paul, has been entrusted with the gospel. And now he is entrusting Timothy to do likewise, to defend the faith, to proclaim the gospel, to fight the good fight. First Timothy is part of a collection of Paul's writings called the Pastoral Epistles. And these are personal letters that Paul has written regarding pastoral ministry and church leadership. Two were written to Timothy. One was written to Titus. Now, you may be thinking, well, I'm not a pastor, so does, do the pastoral epistles apply to me? I'm not a church leader. I don't have a title. I'm not a deacon or an elder or anything fancy, and so maybe it doesn't really apply to me. But I want to encourage you otherwise. One commentator writes that 1 Timothy actually provides one of the clearest and most important answers of, all, uh, of Scripture to the question, what is the church supposed to look like? Okay, let me, let me try that again. Isn't that a question we all need to answer? We want to answer, what is the church supposed to look like? Right? What are we supposed to do together? What is this supposed to really be? And if you read through the pastoral epistles, how Paul is counseling these young leaders, how he's exhorting them, how he's encouraging them, we get a picture of what the church is supposed to look like. And throughout the series, we're going to see what Paul tells us regarding topics such as how to respond to false teachers and heresy. We're going to see what to look for in church leadership, what really matters. Right? What is the spirit in the heart of a true leader, an elder, a deacon, a shepherd? How do we serve the poor? How do we establish and pursue justice as the body of Christ? How to love one another as a family of God? How to fight materialism? It sounds like important stuff, doesn't it? There are things that, these are all things that we need to wrestle with and pursue in, an, in our own church today. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to dive right into the text. Please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll start by reading verses 1 to 11. 1 through 11. 1 Timothy chapter 1, it's going to go up on the screen, and we'll just be reading the first 11 verses together. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, 
the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Amen. The word of the Lord. Allow me to do a little background before we get into the three points of the message today. The author, as I've already mentioned, is, uh, is Paul the Apostle. He wrote this right around 60 AD. Paul was formerly known, as many of you guys know, as Saul the Pharisee. He had a radical conversion experience to Christianity while he was traveling to Damascus. You can read more about it in Acts chapter 9. But Paul was the last person to eyewitness the resurrected Jesus in the New Testament. That was one of the main criteria that made him an apostle. Okay? One was that you had to be chosen by God. You had to be uh, inspired to record the word of God. But the second was that you actually had to be an eyewitness or close to that initial eyewitness of Jesus Christ. Paul was the last one to make it in to this criteria. Now, who was Timothy, right? You know, like we, we all know of Timothy, if you've grown up in the church, that he was like a young man. Paul says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Do you know how old Timothy actually was? He's right around my age, actually. Uh, they believe he was about 35 to 40. Uh, he joined Paul in his ministry. He was a co-worker, co-laborer with Paul as a missionary, going from church to church all throughout the region, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they believe that Timothy hooked up and joined Paul's ministry right around 20, right around in his 20s. And 15 years have now passed. Paul sends Timothy to this church in Ephesus, and he writes this letter of encouragement to them. Paul at this time is about 60 years old. Timothy's 35 to 40. And this is why Paul affectionately calls Timothy his true child in faith. Lastly, why was Paul writing this letter? If you guys read Ephesians, Ephesians is like one of the good churches, right? They're not like Corinthians where they've totally gone off of the you know, uh, secular, um, worldly end. If you read Ephesians, they seem like a good church, a holy church, a godly church. Well, why is he writing this letter? Because years have passed since Paul left Ephesus and the church was in trouble. False teachers had come into the church. Even their own elders have been misled, and the gospel was being twisted. You see, Paul actually spent previously three years building up the church at Ephesus, and when he left them, he actually prophesied that false teachers were come. The accuracy of his prophecy was uncanny. He, this is what he says as he's leaving and saying goodbye in Acts 20, verses 29 to 30. I mean, they're crying together. They're praying together, and this is his final warning. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And years later, that day had come. And so now Paul has sent Timothy to Ephesus. Along with this letter, to rescue the church. We're going to see three things from our text today. First, we're going to see the purpose of the law. Okay. The second, we're going to see the power of the gospel. And lastly, we're going to see the call to contend. Yeah. So the purpose of the law, the power of the gospel, and the call to contend. 
Okay, I need an illustration or a story here because it's getting a little dull, right? Here we go. Uh, there's a lot of talk in uh, recent, year, uh, recent news, right? Especially just, yeah, about the phenomena of fake news. Okay, so recently, this year, last year, especially with the, um, you know, the election, tons of talk and tons of outrage about something called fake news. It's all over our Facebook, right? It's all over our Twitter feeds and even pops up on our Google searches. Why? Because the, the hot articles, the hot blogs, the hot, hot things that are getting traction on, uh, on the internet, they'll pop up on top of your Google search, right? And I'm sure for many of you guys, it's absolutely maddening. Right? You read something, you're like, is that real? That's not real. And then people believe it, and you're like, don't be deceived by fake news. Uh, here are some of the most famous fake news articles or headlines of 2016. Okay? Uh, I, looked up, I literally spent time looking up fake news, and I was on like BuzzFeed and like CNN and X, Y, and Z. And so uh, you might remember seeing some of these. Uh, one of the top ones was Pope Francis shocks the world, endorses Donald Trump for president. Like, the people lost their mind, right? They're like, oh my gosh, this headline, this article of fake news, and there's even like a picture of the Pope with a microphone, and they're like, oh my God. Um, it got oh, nearly a million clicks, shares, comments, interactions, right? They call that like engagement, social uh, media engagement, okay? Million, fake news. Someone just completely made that up. Here's another huge one. This was probably the biggest of 2016. Obama signs executive order banning Pledge of Allegiance in schools nationwide, right? People lost their minds. Over 2 million clicks and engagements, right? 2 million, right? Uh, the third one was kind of fun. Uh, I don't know how many of the younger ones will know this, but uh, it was Pizzagate, hashtag Pizzagate. And it was a fake story about Hillary Clinton and uh, one of her chief of staff uh, running a human trafficking ring in Washington, D.C., through a pizza shop in D.C., right? So they were, as they were, you know, they were going through her emails, and every time there was a reference to pizza, they were like, oh, my gosh, human trafficking growing. She's, like, selling children and X, Y, and Z. And uh, it got a ton of clicks. It got a ton of clicks. People think that, that these fake news articles actually, uh, like, move the needle on the election. Now, here's a question. How does fake news get so much traction? Right? I mean, I post a, a picture of me and my dog on Instagram, I maybe get 30 likes, right? And then someone says, hashtag Pizzagate, and like a million people look at that, right? What is the difference between my you know, hashtags and my posts and these fake news posts? One journalist identified seven ways fake news presents itself to us. I'm just going to share three, okay? One is this, okay? It's through imposter content where genuine sources are impersonated with false made-up sources, okay? You take real people, popular people, and you impersonate them with fake stories and false sources, right? Another is through manipulated content, right? Manipulated content where genuine information or images are doctored or photoshopped, right, to deceive. You guys have probably seen that on the internet as well. You take a picture and it looks like something else is going on, but if someone has completely photoshopped it and you don't know what is left from right, up from down anymore, you're like, is that real? Right? It looks real because people are geniuses with Photoshop now. The third is this, right? Another is just straight false content where genuine, uh, genuine content is shared with false contextual information, okay? False contextual information. So it's, maybe it's a real picture 
Or maybe it's a real event, but somebody has painted a completely different picture of what's really going on. It's false context, right? False context. So the best fake news involves real people, real stories, and real sources, okay? And what you have to do with real people, real sources, real stories, you twist it. You manipulate it just a little bit. Now, why do I share this? Because something terribly similar was happening in the Ephesian church between the false teachers and the word of God. You see, fake news wasn't invented in 2016. It goes all the way back 2,000 years, right, to the word of God and heretics and people who want to twist the word of God for personal gain. In verses 3 to 10 in our passage today, Paul warned Timothy against three false, uh, these false teachers teaching different doctrines, and they were introducing myths and endless genealogies to the church. Now, if I came up here and I just started dropping random names and telling completely just random stories, you guys wouldn't believe me, right? You guys would think, this is the most boring sermon or story ever. Here's the question. How did these false teachers get so much traction in the church? How did they deceive members, even elders in the church? Because these false teachers were referencing the main characters of the Old Testament. They were talking about Adam and Abraham and Moses and David, familiar characters, famous names, but false narratives. They were using the Old Testament law, but coming up with different instructions, different rules on what it meant to really live for God different rules on how to obey him and live a righteous life. They were using the same verses and twisting it. They were using the Ten Commandments and reinterpreting him for the Ephesians. And verse 6 tells us what happened as these false teachers were allowed into the church. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. you got to read verse 7 closely. It is insanity. You know why? Because these false teachers are both ignorant and confident. Okay? <laughs> ignorant and confident. If you ever meet anyone that's ignorant and confident and they're trying to teach you something, you know what you need to do? Just walk away. Right? Walk away. Ignorant and confident is about the worst combination you could possibly have, especially from the pulpit. Right? The Old Testament law was being used, but it was being distorted. The teachers had charisma and confidence, as Kevin Hart would say. They were saying it with their chest, right? But they were making ignorant assertions, just conjectures. In chapter four, we're going to see some of their content. They were teaching against marriage, that a godly life doesn't marry, right? If you really want to live for God, then Jesus is your husband. Jesus is your spouse, and you don't marry in this world. But here's the thing. God says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, right? Which is right. Well, Jesus didn't get married. If I want to be like Jesus, maybe I got to do that. That's an ignorant assertion. Doesn't understand the, the creation mandate, Another thing that they were saying was, uh, you have to abstain from certain foods to obey God. Yeah, you call yourself a Christian, but you got to read the Old Testament. He is not honored when you eat certain things. And they were saying that if you obey these rules, 
That if you obey these commandments in, according to their interpretation, you will gain the favor of God. He will bless you more. He will be more honored by your life. Rather than preaching from a pure heart and a good conscience and with a sincere faith, these false teachers were teaching from arrogance, ignorance, and they were dividing the body of Christ. Friends, those are just three really helpful, just kind of litmus tests. Is this guy rightly preaching the word? At, look at the fruit. The fruit is going to either be arrogance, then you beg, that's probably not good. Another fruit is speculation. You don't really know what you're talking about anymore, but now you're just, getting, you're just speculating about what the Christian life should be. You're just speculating on what it means to glorify God. You're just making it up as you go. You're like, oh my God, I feel like your theology has a bunch of holes in it, right? And the third thing is division. As somebody is teaching the word of God and exhorting the law of God, if you see it actually dividing the church, breaking relationships, you gotta, you gotta identify it as not the word and the will of God. Um, so how are we to use the Old Testament law? Paul tells us in verses 8 to 11 that the true, of the true purpose of the law. And uh, I just want to refer us to uh, some great reform theology. The reformers, uh, they reflected upon the law and the gospel, passages such as this. And they came up with something called, or they held to something called the threefold purpose of the law. Okay? So the note takers, here's another three, right? another triad. Okay? Um, the first purpose of the law how to rightly apply the Old Testament law of God into our lives today is this. The first law, the first purpose, sorry, was to restrain evil. Okay, just cross the board, to restrain evil. This is what Paul writes in verse 8. Now we know that the law is good. That's very important. If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, if you're a baby and you accidentally do it, it's okay, um, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. The first purpose of the law it is universal, and it's for all mankind, because what God wants to do through the moral law is restrain evil, okay? Regardless of religion or creed, whether you're a Christian, atheist, Buddhist, right, um, Muslim, whatever it might be, humanity flourishes best when the moral law of God is upheld and evil is restrained, right? Think about this. When families are free from abuse, when children are not abusing their parents, when husbands are not hitting their wives, that's a better society. That is a better society, a better culture. When the sanctity of life is protected, okay? When people aren't just murdering one another at their own will, according to their own power and ability, just because they can get away with it, right? When we are a community where people guard the sanctity of life, that's a better community. That's a more flourishing community, right? Where people aren't enslaving one another, whether it's human trafficking or any other kind of enslavement. A community without slavery is a better community where there's freedom and justice. Okay? When people tell the truth, right? That's just important. If, 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 yeah, it's just important for people to tell the truth in contracts, in neighborhoods, in business, in relationships, when sexual morality is upheld, 
when justice is preserved. Life would be utter chaos without the moral law of God on the heart, in the hearts of men. Okay? So that's the first purpose, to restrain evil, right? To not let this world just completely decay and crumble. What's the second purpose of the law? The second purpose of the law is this, to lead us to repentance. Okay? So the first is universal for everyone in the world. The second is also for everyone because God wants to lead all of us to repentance and lead us to Jesus. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he wrote this, that the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The law is good because it shows us our sin and it humbles us before a holy lawgiver. Friends, if you ever go to a church and the pastor preaches that the law is bad, that the law is wicked, that the law is evil, they're not preaching the word of God. The law is good. You know why? Because it reflects a holy and a good God. Who is the lawgiver? It is God himself. So who are we to say something that God has ordained, God has commanded, could be bad, could be evil? No, the law is good because it shows us our sin. It humbles us and it presses us to Christ. When we realize that you and I, when we have, that we have broken the law of God, it drives us to despair, to wholly depend on the mercy of God. When we hear the gospel, we can rejoice. Why? Because we have a Savior who has kept the law. We have a Savior who has kept the law that we have failed to keep. And in Christ, we have a reward for law-keeping that none of us deserve. This is why the gospel is a gospel of grace. You look at the law and you're like, oh my gosh, I do not measure up. I broke this, I broke this, I broke this. Right? We see it all the time, every day, upon any reflection upon our lives. The good thing is, the good news is this, you look to Jesus, and he was the ultimate law keeper. And for his righteousness, for his holiness, for his law abiding, he gets a reward. He gets a glory. He gets uh, an inheritance. And what Jesus does is confer that reward, that glory, that life, that joy, that adoption to us. We get the reward of Jesus' law-keeping, and that is why this gospel is a gospel of grace. The law is our tutor. That's the third purpose of the law. The third purpose of the law is to show us God's will for the saved. And this is for us in the church, friends. Okay? The first is universal. God wants to restrain evil everywhere. The second is pretty universal. He wants all of us to be aware of our sin and go to Jesus. The third is for the saints. The third is for the church because the third shows us God's will for the saved. As people who have been saved by the grace of Christ, we now have the law as a tutor on how to love God and love others. You guys remember when I said the law when used wrongly leaves us in an, in an ambiguous state. We're just figuring it out. People are just talking and making stuff up. Do you wanna know how to love God and love others? Read the Bible, read the law, and God commands us. He teaches us how to worship. He teaches us how to love one another, how to serve one another. He teaches us all throughout the law what justice in relationships looks like. He teaches us what reconciliation looks like, what we should do when we've wronged our brother or our sister. You want to know how to love God and love one another? Read the law of God. We don't make it up as we go. And yet there are so many people who call themselves Christians, they live under such speculation, 
So many Christians today are just making it up as they go. Why? Because they are not living by the word of God. It's a self-made DIY Christianity. And friends, yeah, there's a lot of wandering there. We can go to scripture and see what it really looks like to love God and love others. And so we don't keep the law to become saved, okay? That's very important. You don't keep the law to become saved. That's legalism. But now for us as Christians, okay, we keep the law because we are saved. We can keep the law because the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of us and empowering us to be able to love God and love others. And so that's called sanctification, Okay, let me say that one more time. If you keep the law to get saved, if you keep the law to earn God's favor, that's called legalism, okay? But if you keep the law because you are saved, that's sanctification, okay? That's obedience to God. That's walking with him. That's being filled by the spirit and then being able to yeah, follow Christ and imitate him. This is how the church is saved both from the law and from lawlessness. The law is never our savior, Jesus is, now the law is our tutor, okay? The law is our tutor. So friends, I wanna ask this, ask you guys this. How is the law being fulfilled in your life? The law has a purpose, okay? I hope for you guys, evil is being restrained, that you're not going around like lying and cheating and perjuring and, and killing and you know, doing all sorts of wrong, evil things. I hope we've got at least some of that going on in our lives. But there's two greater, more holy more righteous purposes of the law that I think too many of us miss is the law pressing you to Jesus? Is the law showing you your sin? Does the law cause you to grieve over your wandering and your worldliness? Or do you read the law and you're like, ah, it's kind of boring. Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers, even the Ten Commandments feels a little basic and dull. If that's your heart, if that's your heart, I want to warn you right? that the law is not being applied, the presence and the work of God is not rightly being applied in your life. And what you and I need to do is repent and humble ourselves and say, God, would you soften my heart to be able to receive and experience the power and the purpose of your law, your word in my life. Is the law being your tutor? Is the law and the word of God showing you how to live? Or are we just using Jesus Christ as our little emotional, spiritual crutch so that we can live our own lives, so that we can dictate for ourselves what is wrong and right, what we do with our bodies, with our time, with our resources, and we just get a little bit of Jesus, get a little bit of gospel, get a little bit of forgiveness just for our spiritual consciences. Church, the word of God is our tutor. It is the light unto our path. Is God teaching you how to live? Or are you just bearing all the authority in your own life? Are you just following it up, following your own ways? Are you just making it up as you go? Okay. I want to encourage you to go back to the word of God, and especially the law of God, with fresh eyes and a fresh desire and say, Lord, I want to see these three purposes lived out in my life. Let's continue with the rest of our passage as Paul now testifies to the power of the gospel. Turn again to the passage, and I'm just gonna read uh, verses 12 to 18 again. Uh, it's just amazing how Paul pivots 
It feels like he's condemning, but then he goes right into his own testimony. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. To many people, what Paul previously stated about sin, about lawlessness, it seems full of hate and bigotry. Right? People would read that and be like, oh my gosh, Paul is such a hateful person. Paul, who are you to denounce homosexuality? Who are you to deny me my right of sexual expression? Who are you to call us ungodly and profane? But here we see, look at what Paul has done here. Here we see that Paul is not a messenger of mere condemnation. He's a messenger of mercy. He confesses that he is the chief of sinners. You see, you read that previous passage, you're like, oh my God, Paul, all the fingers are pointed outward. But what has he done in this next passage? He says, look at me. I am the chief of sinners. I am the foremost. I am the worst, the worst of all. He's not accusing. He's, being a, he's a testimony of God's grace and the power of the gospel. Before he met Christ, he was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was an all-out opponent of God. Paul's mission as Saul the Pharisee, was to destroy the church and everyone in it. Okay. That's what he was bent to do. He was ripping away men from their families, women from their homes, children from their fathers, if they claimed Jesus as Lord. He loved going into congregations and scattering them, forcing them to flee in fear of their own lives. He even had one of the first deacons, Stephen, stoned to death for his faith in Jesus Christ and the resurrection. If anyone has lived a sinful life, it was Paul. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought, man, God, I am beyond salvation? Okay. The things that I have done, how can God ever forgive me? I can't quit these habitual sins. How can God ever forgive me? Your rap sheet probably doesn't look half as bad as Paul's, does it? I hope it doesn't. If it does, like, you let me know, and I'm going to unfriend you on Facebook. <laughs> right? Think about that. We are so quick to condemn ourselves and think ourselves beyond saving beyond redemption, beyond God's mercy, and look and take a realistic look at Saul the Pharisee and his heart and his actions 
and his motivations. It was all as an opponent and an enemy of God and his people. And it wasn't just in his heart. It was something he was doing and executing with his hands. If anyone was beyond saving, it was him. But something happened. Something happened to Paul. Grace appeared. And this is his testimony. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is what he's saying. This this is so real, guys. This is so true. Everyone needs to trust in this. Everyone should receive this and believe in this. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul says, I'm the worst. I've got blood on my hands. People are in jail because of me. Innocent men and women are in jail because of me. People have been beaten because of me. I am the worst, and yet this is the gospel. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like me. David Platt, in his commentary on 1 Timothy, he makes three great observations regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ from this passage. And I want to share them with you today. First is this. The gospel's incarnational. The gospel is incarnational. What does that mean? It means that Jesus came. Jesus left the throne of God. He left the glory of heaven, perfect fellowship with the Father and with the Spirit. And he came into this broken and fallen world to save sinners. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh to save us. He drew near to us. That is incarnational grace. Friends, I know there are so many times you're like, God, I can't reach you. God, I don't know if my singing, my prayers, my worship can ascend to the heavens. And even the psalmist said this, who can ascend to the holy hill of God? The promise of the gospel is this. Jesus came down. He knew you couldn't make it up there. He knew we couldn't make it up to the heavens. So what did Jesus do? He came to save sinners. The gospel is incarnational. Second point is this. The gospel is universal and personal. The the universal and personal nature of the gospel. It is universal in that Jesus came to save sinners. He came to save sinners, and that is all of us. All of us have sinned and fall short. All of us are wretched. All of us could probably look to each and every one of us in this room and say, I'm the worst. No, I'm the worst, right? No, I'm the foremost. We could all kind of have that debate and have that dialogue. There's a universal nature to the gospel. It is true and trustworthy for all people, okay? It's not just acceptable to the people who grew up in church, It's not just acceptable and trustworthy for the the people who are kind of naturally good and moral. No. Paul is saying this, this gospel truth is trustworthy for all people. And if anyone would believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for them and rose on the third day, they can be saved. And yet it's personal. It's personal because Paul testifies. He says, God gave me mercy. God met me. Jesus met me on that road to Damascus. God gave me strength. Grace overflowed in me. And church, this is what we must believe. 
that he has the power to save all and that he has the desire to save you. Okay, do you believe that? I meet so many people in the church who don't have a problem with the propositions of the gospel. They're like, okay, yeah, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe 2,000 years ago he lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and I mean, miraculously, I believe in miracles, no problem. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And I said, what's the problem? He says, I don't believe God loves me. I don't know if Jesus has saved me. I don't know if God will accept me. Is that you? Where you don't struggle with the universal work of God and the nature of the gospel, but you struggle with the personal work of Jesus Christ in your life. And that is what Paul is pressing today, that that is that, that, that second edge of the gospel that you and I must accept. Not just the propositional truths of Calvary, but the personal truths that Jesus loves you. And he gave himself for you. And he wants to give you mercy. And this is not being self-centered. It's called having a relationship with Jesus and allowing him to be your savior. The gospel is universal and personal. Here's the third point. The grace of God is unconditional. Now let me explain what this means, okay? When we say unconditional, it is not saying that no matter what we do, we're going to be saved. There's that Backstreet Boys song, like, I don't care who you are, where you've been, what you've done, as long as you, like, it's, this is not it, right? It is not Backstreet Boys all over again, okay? So unconditional grace is not, no matter what you do, you're going to be saved. That is not it, okay? Wipe that out clean. It is saying that there were no conditions in us that were enough to be saved. It is saying that you and I are not saved because we deserved it. It's saying that you and I do not receive grace because we were worthy. Do you know what Paul was doing? Remember what Paul was doing before he got saved, before he met Jesus, before his life was filled with grace. Was there any condition in him that merited favor and grace? No. He had just left the stoning of Stephen and he was on the road to Damascus to get more Christians, to destroy more churches. There are nothing but negative and bad conditions in Saul the Pharisee's life. Regardless and despite those conditions, Jesus came to him. That's unconditional grace. That means we come to the cross and we can rightly say, God, there is no reason in me that you should hear my, hear my prayers right now. God, I know that there's no reason right now for you to, 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 to show me mercy, to give me strength, to fill me with love. I know I have no case, no justification, no argument. God, I know that there are no conditions in me, but Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. That's the invitation of the gospel, that despite our damning sinful conditions, Jesus saved. Jesus offers unconditional grace. That's the power of the gospel church, that we see that it's incarnational, it's universal and personal, and that it's unconditional. Lastly, I want to close with this, the call to condemn. We don't have much time, so I'm just going to close with Paul's charge to Timothy in verses 18 to 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, 
that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Humanaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's a picture of church discipline. Humanaeus and Alexander were the two Ephesian leaders, the elders, the co-workers of Paul, who had actually denied the faith. They had sold out. They'd been deceived by these false teachers. And Paul excommunicates them. He hands them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. In this final charge, we get this great faith phrase, fight the good fight, right? Fight the good fight of faith. Paul has presented Timothy with two options. One is the way of the false teachers, okay? Do you want to misinterpret the law? Do you want to make it up as you go? Do you want to buy into false narratives, false myths, false genealogies? Or will you follow the way of the gospel? Will you follow the way of orthodoxy? Will you follow and submit to the teaching of the apostles? Because this is what's going on here. During the early church, they are still forming at this time. Paul is still writing, and the, the New Testament is being written as he's writing to Timothy and Titus. So they don't have the canon closed yet. So there's all these false teachers who are trying to get in. But there's two options. You either follow the teaching of the apostles or you follow the teaching of these heretics. And that's what orthodoxy is, church. It's an apostolic faith. Okay, it's an apostolic faith. We consider the teaching of Peter. We consider the teaching of Paul, the writings of John. And we ask, are these the true eyewitnesses of Jesus? Are these the true apostles? If so, then they have a divine God-given authority. Or are we going to listen to the people who tickle our ears, the people who say what we want them to say? Right? That's the contention. And Paul says, will you fight the good fight? Will you hold to this apostolic faith? Or will you go the other way, just like Humanaeus and Alexander who have shipwrecked their faith? Church, there are two ways, two arenas where you and I must fight this good fight of faith. First is in your hearts. You must ask, do you believe? Okay. Will you believe and trust in the word of God and in the gospel? Will you be a person who submits to the law of God and the law is your tutor? The law is your schoolmaster. You allow the law to break your heart and then lead you to Jesus and heal and redeem and renew you all by the word and hand and spirit of God? Or are you going to ignore it and live your own life under your own authority? That's the first arena where we are called to fight the good fight of faith. Okay. The second arena is this. It's for the church. The church needs not just pastors, not just elders and deacons. We need members who corporately will take a stand against false teaching, who corporately will protect and guard the church from false teachers and false influences. It's not just my job, church, to protect the flock. It's all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ to fight the good fight of faith, to contend for the gospel. 
I want to invite you to love the church with that kind of zeal. Would you love all nations with that kind of love? That you would pray for our purity, you would pray for our faith, you would pray that God would protect us from false teaching, and you would pray that we would be a church bold, bold to stand for the word of God, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know um, sometimes this is hard, guys, and it doesn't necessarily have to be like on social media. You don't have to like share and repost all of these things. But um, very recently, uh, evangelical, uh, many of whom were reformed, conservative, godly men and women, they signed something called the, uh, the Nashville Declaration. And the Nashville Declaration was written and forged by um, the Center for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And it was simply an affirmation of biblical traditional uh, male and female sexuality. Okay. Um, when it got posted, um, liberals went nuts. Seculars, uh, people in this world, in our community, they're like, oh my gosh, such hate from fundamentalist Christians. Right? And when you see that kind of coming out, that kind of anger, that kind of reaction for us in the church, we just don't want it, right? Who wants to get yelled at? Who wants the frowny or the angry face on social media on your post? Like, you don't want that. You don't want contention. You just want to be a peacemaker, okay? I'm not saying we all need to go online and sign the Nashville Declaration. I just want to say this. There are, are always going to be temptations for us to shrink. Whether it's a passing conversation are we going to allow people in our workplace, in our communities, to mock and jeer Jesus Christ in the gospel? And we'll just be non-confrontational and be quiet and nod and smile? Or will you contend for the faith? Right? These are all personal, real-life questions we have to ask. I'm not saying, hey, we just need to be like social media, online, cause warriors. I just think we need to ask, are there moments where we're shrinking from the gospel? where we're compartmentalizing the word and truth of God into our just little Sunday lives, maybe a little time with small group and everywhere else, we just want to get along with this world. Would you consider that, church? Paul has called Timothy to contend for the faith. He entrusted Timothy with the word and truth of God, and I believe he's entrusted that same truth and gospel to us as well. May that be proclaimed in our lives, in our homes, and in our church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for such a rich gospel. A gospel that is incarnational, universal, personal, and unconditional. Jesus, we thank you that you have kept the law perfectly in our place. Even though we are such terrible lawbreakers. We thank you that your gospel is a gospel of grace. And Father, I want to pray for two things right now in this moment for this congregation. I pray for anyone who is struggling with faith, struggling with whether they trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior. God, I pray that your word and your law would lead them to repentance and lead them to faith right now. God, would your word bear genuine fruit in our lives? Would your word accomplish its purpose as you have promised? And I have a second prayer for our congregation. 
that for those of us who are of faith, may your word instruct us. May we be a people who are submitting. May we be a people surrendered. May we be a people who are tutored by your word. And God, may we find your authority to be sweet and life-giving and good. Lord, your will is not oppressive. Lord, you are not a slave driver. You are a liberator. You lead us. You lead us into a way of life everlasting. God, may we taste of that.